Welcome to the Business Design Podcast, uh, where we try to help, you know, viewers and ourselves reimagine what business design looks like. Actually, Kent, we don't have many viewers. They've switched off because I certainly have a face for radio, not for television. Now, I got to say, though, I, I've been trying for years to, uh, I've been working on a skill where I'll stare at a podcast, you know, sometimes it has a little waveform or something, I'll stare oh, okay. at it and then... Yeah, see if I can. <laughs> so I saw a post from somebody on Facebook, my favorite place to waste time um, today, and she said very clearly that one of her one of her super skills, one of her talents, is that she can identify what people look like when she hears them on a podcast. See, I've always thought I could do that, but then I see a picture of the person and I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, getting back to our podcast today, um, I'm Randy Baker. My colleague here is Dr. Kent. Most times, yeah. Yeah, sometimes he forgets. That's an age thing. But today we're talking to Bob Norton. No, he is not with Norton Motorcycles. And many of you probably don't know that such a thing existed, but they did. Bob Norton, he's, well, Kent, what can you say? There's not much to say. So, so um, listeners, you got to listen to this whole interview uh, because I think what's interesting is the way the interview flowed and went was really interesting because we would try and kind of throw some kind of crazy question at Bob and he always had a way of bringing it back to a very similar kind of core concept, which is really an amazing skill. And so it's fun to so listen through this interview and watch him do that. It's a, it's a beautiful media skill that he has. I think. Yes, it is. And it's a skill that most of us don't have, but should work hard to learn because it means you can take advantage of virtually every conversation you have, which is a good thing. Well, so we can take advantage of it. Here's our interview with Bob Norton. Bob, so nice to see you. I, I have to say, um, the architecture behind you makes me want to just kind of dive in over there. Um, and then do I see a shark in the distance up there? No, uh, that's actually, there's a couple model planes. There's a uh, F-117 stealth fighter, and there's the VTOL uh, Osprey uh, vertical takeoff and landing airplane. I'm a pilot. And so I've got a bunch of pilot models scattered around the house of, of the uh, airplanes that I use. Some of them I use as metaphors and some of my CEO boot camp training, like the SR-71 was one of the first stealth aircraft that was the surveillance platform that replaced the U-2, which came out of the skunk works of Lockheed Martin. And I teach a lot of skunk works techniques to enhance uh, creativity and, and rates of innovation. So... I don't think I would have made it as a pilot. I'm I'm a little too large. I'm six seven. Am yeah. I right? Are there tall pilots, or is that still a thing? I don't just... know what the limit is. I'll bet there is a limit because you know, obviously, the cockpits are built for the the average person. So yeah, that might have that might have excluded you. Yeah, but I'm just an amateur pilot. You know, I I, I got my license the summer I graduated from high school. Uh, you know, did some of my first solos in a hailstorm. You know, I, I enjoy a little adventure and challenge. Where was that? Where was uh, that? Massachusetts. I grew up in Massachusetts. I, uh, I trained at Norwood Airport, which is a little south of Boston on the, the Piper and uh, Cessna, you know, two, two to four seater airplanes. 
Interesting. Did you ever, have you ever taken off and landed on Cape Cod out there? Oh yeah. Yeah. I actually, I flew my, uh, my best friend to his wedding on Martha's Vineyard and I was in and out and the whole outside of Cape Cod is a national preserve and it's a great area to go buzz. They've got a, a book called The $100 Hamburger, which lists all the spots you can fly into and, and, and you know, get a, get a quick lunch at just to enjoy the beach like uh, Race Point out on the tip of Cape Cod. I'm a big sailor too. I had a yacht on uh, on Cape Cod for many years, and both raced and cruised it around that area. So I know all about the hundred dollar burger. You heard of that? Yeah. yeah. I, I was in the space game in Mojave, based out of Mojave, California, for sixteen years. So you know where they're hiding all the UFOs. Yeah. I know where they're hiding all the UFOs. I. I yeah, I, I watched every day as the jumbo jets were being dismantled and torn apart in the graveyard out there. And it yeah. was pretty amazing stuff. Our viewers, our viewers, our listeners can't see you, Bob, but your your right arm is in a sling. I'm in a sling. I broke my wrist about two weeks ago. So what's the story about that? I, I was tackled from behind by two overly zealous dogs that were playing and I didn't see them coming. And each of them took out one of my knees. And so my whole body weight dropped on my wrist. And I broke both my ulna and my radial oh, in wow. four places. <laughs> my goodness. And were they your dogs or someone else's dogs? It was one of my dogs and, and one of the neighbor's dogs that uh, they're always out there playing and running. So that tells me we should always keep our eyes open and looking behind us as well as ahead. And I'm sure that's a philosophy you have in business as well. Yeah, I'm really big on doing competitive intelligence actively and monitoring the marketplace and, and make sure you have a an updated competitive landscape map and active competitive intelligence program. Absolutely. There's nothing like situational awareness in your domain space and industry. One of the things we teach at the CEO Boot Camp is, you know, Michael Porter's competitive landscape mapping. And one of my um, bugaboos about uh, angel investors and, and people that are trying to raise money is they rarely present the sustainable competitive advantage in their presentation. Sometimes they present differentiation and how they're different now, but they really don't talk about how you're going to maintain that. And that's what generates 100x multiples instead of 10 or 8x multiples. And so to the investor, it ought to be, or at least the sophisticated investor, it ought to be the very first question. And so obviously, really understanding deeply your marketplace and the competitors and the direction of those competitors in the competitive landscape map is very important for strategic planning and, uh, uh, and, and getting ahead of the marketplace with your vision. I mean, you'll never meet a billionaire a self-made billionaire who doesn't have a long-term vision to you know to what they're building their company towards which is never what the market looks like today it's what it looks like five years from now or three years from now so when you're working with the smaller companies at the smaller end of the business scale people with five ten fifty employees mm -hmm. often the the founders or ceos or the c-suites have trouble understanding how they can capture market share from the big players in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, how do you suggest that they start thinking about their business 
to be able to do that, to, to get past that blockage that makes them feel like they're just a small company? Well, first I would say that probably the magic word there is differentiation. And making sure you can provide something that no one else is providing in the market. A company that small should literally design their business model so they have zero competitors. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of variables that you can adjust in a business model to position yourself differently. And if you give me any product or value proposition, I can come up with 10, 15, 20, maybe even 100 different ways to enter the market because you know there's who you select in targeting, there's the price positioning, there's all the variables about what that product or service does you know as a value proposition for competitors and when you put all of those dimensions together you know you'll typically wind up with five or six competitive landscape maps which means 10 to 12 spectrums that you can orient yourself on. And one of the exercises we do in the CEO Bootcamp is to build multiple competitive landscape maps and put them on acetate and then overlay them. And so you can actually find spaces that are not just differentiated in one or two dimensions, but potentially all five or six dimensions, which gives you a lot of agility in developing as the company grows and you expand your niche. You may have a niche where there's a product portfolio. You may have a product which needs a portfolio of niches. And those are a couple easy ways to expand a business and know going in that you have a lot of white space, which is static differentiation at the moment of market entry, but more importantly, the steps you're gonna take into other white spaces to expand that may have larger and larger markets as you have larger budgets and staff and, and depth on your management team bench to be able to address larger markets because, you know, counter to what a lot of entrepreneurs want to do, you know, you've got to bite off, uh, you know, a, a market size that is reasonable for a startup and then you want to expand it. You don't want to be fighting 800 pound gorillas on day one that can drown you with marketing dollars and messaging and, and 10 other ways. So coming back, looping back, differentiation is the number one word. You want to be able to say, we're the only company that does X for Y. And that X is obviously your unique selling proposition of how you're better or different than anyone else that might be adjacent to you in the market space. So. Bob, I, I get this this nice picture uh, of you as a um, seven year old. I'm thinking kind of Charlie Brown style, walking into second or third grade. You know, the teacher saying "wah wah 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 wah," and um, where the teacher am I, Charlie, thinking, or the teacher? <laughs> <laughs> you're one of the students, and the, the teacher's looking at you, and they're like. Hmm, Bob, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what differentiates him. So I'm curious as to what 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 is your sort of innate difference? You know, as you were talking about differentiation, I was thinking, clearly you've got incredible ability to strategize and understand situations and advise at a high level. So I'm curious, from early age, what was that difference? Well, I think that can be answered on many levels. But if you mean, you know, kind of what were my unique gifts that I allowed me to develop into who I am today, I would say lots of curiosity and 
a drive to learn. You know, even in my younger age, I was always considered driven and very focused. I enjoyed adventure. I, you know, had the entrepreneurial gene of risk taking. I had four businesses before I left high school, including a mail order business for ham radio antennas, because ham radio was one of the 20 hobbies I've done over the years, which I guess is a symptom of my my curiosity and, and desire to always be learning. I call myself a, a serial hobbyist because I like to do something for a few years and you know, get 90 or 95% up the learning curve and get good at it and then move on and, and learn something else. So that innate curiosity and desire to learn, you know, there's a, there's a good book on that by Peter Senjay called The Learning Organization. And it's kind of one of the most foundational things that an innovative and successful company should have is that constant desire to push the envelope to do, you know, what the Japanese call Kaizen, constant and never-ending improvement. Kanai is the, the other way that's phrased, the acronym, so that you're kind of always improving every week, every month, every year in big ways. So that would probably be number one. So as a, as a kid, you know, at home, were, I assume your, your folks were feeding your cereal uh, hobby habit? Well, my, my dad was very big on education. So, you know, back then you had the, you know, the four encyclopedias you can get and, you know, we had all of them and he was really big on the word of the day and learning and, and that sort of stuff. So some of that came from my dad. I was introduced to personal development at about age nine or 10 because he was doing transcendental meditation. And so I had a good balance. Your dad was between doing TM? Yeah, when you, way back then. Yeah, wow. yeah, it was fairly new then, I suppose. But um, where did he? Yeah. Where did he get into that from? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I mean, it was, uh, you know, he, you know, it was a seminar sort of thing. I mean, he was one of those learning junkies, just like me. So maybe it's genetic, or or maybe I just learned it from him. Who knows? You know. I love the I love that the um, the serial hobbyist and where that connects with sort of the management speak. So what I think is interesting about you and just meeting meeting you at this level here is is you have the ability to, to speak in, in the words that CEOs sort of request and expect. And then there's also this like, I feel like it'd be really fun to learn how to fly a kite or build a circuit or whatever else with you, like, or, or try something new. Uh, or figure out how to fly a plane or, or, or how to build a, you know. So where do those two things meet in your in your practice and work? I'm not sure I understand the question. What, which two things? The the curiosity and and yeah, the, so the, the serial so hobby the, thing? <laughs> yeah, the corporate speak on yeah. one side and okay. the serial hobbyist on the other. Well, yeah. you know, being the constant learner, I think it's a CEO's job to be able to adjust their language and their conversation to the people they're speaking to. And so obviously you can't talk at the same strategic level with a shop for employee the way you would a manager or a supervisor or an executive or another CEO. And so you have to be sensitive to and adjust the language set you use. And typically you can tell where someone grew up, whether it was sales, marketing, finance, product development, or operations, just by their sentences and what words they use because they're they're using things. And this, this allows me to diagnose very quickly businesses in 10 or 15 minutes to rapidly understand where the opportunities for improvement are because every CEO and every executive comes with a history 
and a perspective, you know, that they grew up in business in, whether that's marketing or sales or product development or whatever. And, and so going with that statistically, you know that they're gonna, you're gonna have to overcompensate in the other areas with them to kind of have them see the balanced view of what I call the vision pie, which is the 11 elements that you check off in a vision to make sure your vision is complete. Because that's a term that's sort of misused a lot and, and propagated by the media to kind of mean just a market position or a product or something like that, when it really should be the strategy in all the areas of the business together, as well as to some degree the tactical implementation and the the why of Simon Sinek, as well as the core hedgehog concept that Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great, that are sort of the core of what you're gonna invest in and try to be the best in the world at, you know? So you've got the hedgehog. Well, let's just go from that. What's your hedgehog? What's it when people, let's do the Huckleberry finning. I, I like this. So, so people are eulogizing well, you. Well, I, I run three businesses, so I've got three different hedgehog concepts there. Do you mean me personally as a CEO coach or trainer? So here's what I would say. So, so, so next, next week, um, I hope this doesn't happen, by the way, but if next week your airplane falls out of the sky and there's a, a great ceremony and you have a chance to sit up in the balcony and watch like Huckleberry Finn did, what would people remember about you? So Simon Sinek, okay, the why guy, right? So what, what are the key features about you that, that folks would say, oh, wow, this, this, was, this was everything, this was different? Well, you know, it, it's kind of like writing what's, what's, my, what's engraved on my tombstone, I guess. I've always wanted to take airtight management, which is my modular management operating system and make it a standard. It's something I created in 2011 and it has six drop-in modules that we use to prepare companies to scale. And, and so I can see that becoming a standard as it's the most sophisticated thing out there today by far. It's, it's probably 10 times more complex than EOS in terms of creating a cadence for the business about what you check and how, and not only having a strategic planning process, but dashboards and a collection of management best practices and process management, as well as control of your culture in the organization. And so- So I don't think all of that would fit on the tombstone. No, no. Well, it, it would be saying he pushed the envelope in leadership and management systems, I guess. Love that. Yeah, yeah. Love that. I was messing with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I'm always trying to, you know, push management science further. And it amazes me how little training we have in a university environment. And, you know, I have MBAs mm -hmm. from Harvard come through my CEO boot camp and they turn their hair sideways and say, why didn't I learn any of this when I paid $200,000 to get an MBA? And the only answer I have is they don't know it. This is street practical knowledge that's been gathered over three decades and integrated into a holistic framework. And most experts are, are very deep and narrow and a CEO needs to be broad and shallow because they need to manage the strategic level of all areas of the business. And that includes the, the sales, the marketing, the departments and the divisions, 
but also the softer skills, HR and controlling your culture and what's the hiring process that, that is going to ensure that your people and your culture will map what's appropriate for your industry and your value proposition to customers. So it will kind of it will kind of look like the CEO is walking on water since it's very broad and shallow waters. If they just walk barefoot, you know, it looks like they're... Well, um, you know, I, I, I believe in servant leadership. I believe that sometimes you ought to turn that upside down because your job as the CEO is to give everyone else all the resources that they need to execute. And so I believe in very flat organizations until the company gets to 30, 40, 50 people. And then, and then obviously you've got to have more formalized communications and, and, and chain of command and, and, and span of control, as they call it, with how many people report to who. But you always have to stay in touch with the customer. And this is where a lot of big companies fail. They get so many layers away from the customer, they they lose it. This is why Amazon and Jeff Bezos requires every executive, including himself, to be to work in the customer service department. Um, I forget whether it's a day a year or half a day a year or something like that. But that puts you in contact directly without all those layers of bureaucracy so that you can really see what's happening on the ground floor and, you know, sort of where the rubber hits the road delivering value to customers. So, Bob, before we, we wrap up, one of the things that I always love asking people who are experienced in the business world is what do they see the next 10 years as, as being? I mean, we all have crazy cracked crystal balls. We really can't, we really don't know. But where are we heading? What we've, we've gone through COVID, we've gone into the remote workforce. Where are we going? What do you see? Well, I'm excited about a bunch of things that are happening in the business space. One is blockchain and how I think that will touch just about every industry and cryptocurrency being one application of that. AI is certainly coming into its own. I mean, I've been hearing about AI taking over the world since the 1980s, and I think this is the third or fourth wave of it with venture capitalists throwing billions of dollars at it. You know, back in the 80s, it was expert systems that were very narrow things. And of course, you know, the there's a lot of differentiation in terms of what we believe about when we're going to hit that singularity of, uh, you know, an artificial intelligence becoming as intelligent uh, as a person. Uh, I don't know that that will happen in my lifetime, but I think we're going to make progress on that spectrum. And so I do think AI is going to have an impact on an awful lot of businesses. Um, if you ever want to read a real mind-blowing book, because this is a big question. I used to be part of the World Future Society and that kind of thing. There's a book called Engines of Creation by Eric Drexler, which talks about the convergence of nanotechnology, biotechnology, and computer technology, and that all the things you can do when you put those things together. And just one example of something that we absolutely know will happen in the future, but can't predict exactly when, is the day will come when we back a garbage truck up to an empty lot and dump that week's garbage on it, seed the garbage with a nanorobot that builds other nanorobots, which puts up a perfect house, and I mean perfect to the molecular level, without any human intervention at all. You know, we know stuff like that is gonna happen as the IT and the nanotechnology and to some extent the biotechnology 
And so labor will become less and less necessary. And, and it, you know, it brings you back to the Star Trek vision of utopia, you know, where everyone, you know, their, their basic needs are met, right? And they, therefore, they can focus on creative activities and art and those things that, that in theory, you know, machines can't do and enjoying life because all the labor, you know, will sort of be done by nanobots and robots and, and other things, and obviously, society has to adjust the political and economic um, systems to that sort of future. But yeah, I mean, I could we could have a five-hour discussion about this, and I probably wouldn't stop talking about it because I'm I'm big on looking at the future and uh, and, and trying to predict where it will be. I had literally never imagined a vision of the future that included nanobots turning trash into a home, but I love it. I think yeah. the, I love that that sort of it, it scratches niche that I didn't realize I had um, about the future. And yeah, it's a mind blowing book. I recommend it to everyone. There's a, there's a bunch of you know t- a twenty top twenty list of books. I think everyone should read, and that's definitely on it. So it's been really fun chatting with you. We like to keep these short. Uh, where can folks find you, and who are you looking to con- connect with? Well, um, we're expanding our CEO bootcamp into Entrepreneurship University. And so they can check us out at entrepreneurshipu.com, which is going to be an unbundling of all of the courses that we teach at the CEO bootcamp so that managers in certain areas of the business can do that. Also, ceobootcamp.us if you're a a wannabe entrepreneur or an entrepreneur or believe it or not, even a 10-year experienced CEO, I find that even people with 10 years experience don't know half of what we teach at the CEO Bootcamp because I've been collecting and curating this stuff now for 30 years as a serial entrepreneur and it's all sort of been systematized. And uh, if you want to contact us by email, info at airtightmgt.com, short for management. Awesome. It's been a real inspiration chatting with you. You said before we started talking that we could throw anything at you and we, we did our best. <laughs> uh, and it's been really fun to, to hear some really amazing, let's say, broad and shallow directions that I would love to go deeper on. And, and I really appreciate you directing us in all those different ways. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Let's do it again on another topic sometime. Well, thank you, Bob. That was a, a truly interesting interview. We went from, oh, we went from pilots to, I think we mentioned sailing, to dogs, to broken wrists, to all the way through to nanorobots building houses out of trash. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. That will never get out of my brain again. So that was, yeah, that was pretty amazing. Really loved it. Thank you so much for your time. So if... Uh, folks are, you know, uh, thinking about just kind of waiting around until the nano robots uh, build something for you in your backyard made out of trash. You know, good luck with that. But if you feel like kind of, you know, getting up off your nano butt and doing something with your life, you can uh, go over to crazymba.com. Hey, Randy, actually, Bob was mentioning uh, Harvard here. You're often talking about Harvard. Yeah, so so Bob was talking about uh, he's got a business, entrepreneuru.com. I'm giving him another plug. That may be in direct competition to our new business, crazymba.com. 
where we say, why spend a couple of hundred grand going to Harvard when you could do crazy MBA and get all the skills you need to start and run your own business? And I'm going to throw it in here for a buck. CrazyMBA.com.